Rarecast listeners, virtual registration for the 2021 Rare Patient Advocacy Summit is now open. Gain insights about the latest in rare disease innovations, best practices for advocating on an individual and organizational level, and actionable strategies you can implement immediately to accelerate change. Register now and learn more at globalgenes.org forward slash event forward slash patient hyphen summit. That's globalgenes.org forward slash event forward slash patient hyphen summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. While genetic medicines promise to transform the way rare diseases are treated, one of the greatest challenges to realizing the full potential of these new therapies is the delivery of them to the cells within the body where they must go to be effective. James Dahlman, Associate Professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Georgia Tech and Emory University, has been working to address this issue through the development of nanoparticles that could serve as vectors. We spoke to Dahlman about the delivery challenges of genetic medicines, how nanoparticles compare to viral vectors, and what it takes to develop new vectors that can deliver genetic medicines to where they need to go. This episode is part of our ongoing Platforms of Hope series that explores advances in gene therapy and gene editing. James, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Dan. We're going to talk about the challenges of delivering genetic medicines, the case for looking beyond viral vectors, and how we're able to engineer vectors for delivering these therapies where they're needed to go. Uh, Let's begin with the challenges. How much of a problem is the delivery of gene therapies to the tissue and cells they need to go today? And, And how much of a barrier is this to realizing the full potential for genetic medicines? Yeah, Daniel, I think it's a great question. You can make a compelling argument that this is the most important problem that needs to be solved. When you look at the liver, for example, we can deliver RNA drugs and genetic medicines to the liver. And as a result, you have many, many FDA approvals and many more clinical data sets that have been generated that look like they might lead to approvals for liver RNA drugs. However, if you look at the lungs, the heart, the bone marrow, the kidneys, other tissues where we know there are genetic diseases, we have the RNA drugs that could treat those genetic diseases, but we can't deliver those drugs right now, you don't see any FDA approvals. So it really is a yes, no type of situation If you can deliver into the tissue, you can make a huge difference in the lives of many patients. If you can't deliver into the tissue, you cannot meet your clinical endpoints and you will not get an FDA-approved drug. I'm thinking of genetic medicines broadly, whether it's gene replacement therapy, gene editing, or RNA therapies. Do 
they share the same delivery challenges or are they unique to particular modalities? The delivery challenges have some traits that are shared across antisense oligonucleotides, siRNAs, mRNAs that encode genes for protein replacement, and mRNAs that encode nucleases like Cas9, which I would say those are sort of the four classes of common drugs. There are others, those are four common ones. So some of these issues are shared. For example, for both ASOs, siRNAs, and mRNAs, it looks like we can deliver to tissues like the liver. Outside the liver, it's much harder. But there are other uh, ways that these differ. One, with siRNA and ASOs, you can actually make the drugs nucleotide by nucleotide by nucleotide. What I mean by that is for siRNAs, you can actually say, hey, I want you know, the fourth RNA nucleotide in my siRNA drug to be a normal RNA nucleotide, but I want the fifth one to be chemically modified in some way. And I want the sixth one to be chemically modified in a different way. So you can actually control nucleotide by nucleotide by nucleotide, the types of chemical modifications, the structures, and so on. So it's an actual defined drug product. When you're dealing with any kind of mRNA, we don't have that nucleotide by nucleotide control yet. And so we're making averages of products. So there are some differences between the small drugs like ASOs and siRNAs and the larger drugs like mRNA. But people are working really hard to make the mRNA drugs better and better and better, especially now that the uh, COVID mRNA vaccines have shown such promise. Genetic medicines need vectors to deliver them. For the most part, therapeutic developers have focused on viral vectors like AAV and lentiviral vectors. What are the limitations of those? Well, I'd start by saying there are limitations to both non-viral systems like lipid nanoparticles or other nanoparticles, and there are different limitations to viral vectors. Oftentimes, these limitations select for the disease. So for example, there are diseases like hemophilia where you need one protein produced for a very, very long time at pretty constant levels. That's gonna be better solved by an AAV than a lipid nanoparticle, for example. But in other cases, like when you're expressing a, a Cas9 nuclease, you don't want that Cas9 nuclease around for a very long time. You want it to cut the genome and then you want it to go away. You don't want something cutting the genome and then floating around and cutting more and more genome for seven years or for many years. So in that case, you want a non-viral system. So I wanna start off by saying that there are advantages to non-viral systems and there are other advantages to viral systems. And oftentimes um, those advantages mean that it's very, very obvious which solution you need for your particular disease. Having said that, the limitations of viral vectors are the inability to redose and the size of the gene that you can put in the viral system, at least for AAVs. So it's very, very hard to administer a viral drug more than once. And even if you can administer the drug, um, it's hard to put in large genes into AAVs. 
Non-viral systems do not have these same limitations. You work with constructing nanoparticles as delivery mechanisms. What exactly are nanoparticles and, and how do you construct them? Nanoparticles are nanoscale spheres. So I'm about six foot two. So that means I'm about one billion eight hundred thirty million nanometers tall to give you a scale. The, the nanoparticles that we're talking about are, let's say, 70 nanometers in diameter. What's amazing is that we can actually design these nanoparticles to have different sizes. Maybe we want a 30 nanometer particle versus a 130 nanometer particle. We can do that. Uh, we can design them to have certain charges. So sometimes we want them to have a positive charge. Other times we want them to have no charge. Other times we want them to have a, a negative charge. And we can do all this um, pretty simply uh, using basic chemistry, sort of fundamental chemistry. Nanoparticles are, can be composed of different ingredients. Common ingredients include peptides and proteins or separately polymers. So like imagine little balls of plastic, or as we're now familiar with from the COVID vaccines, uh, lipids. So lipid nanoparticles or LMPs, which are little balls of lipid. And in all three of those cases, peptide nanoparticles, polymeric nanoparticles, or lipid nanoparticles, uh, the nanoparticles compose of components that are called amphiphiles, which, um, for those of you going back to some of your chemistry textbooks or biology textbooks are structures that have both a hydrophilic component, something that loves water and a hydrophobic component, something that hates water. So that's what these things are uh, comprised of. You mentioned that there are advantages and disadvantages. In, in general, what are the advantages and disadvantages of nanoparticles as vectors? Yeah, so one of the advantages of nanoparticles as a delivery vector is the ability to redose. Um, there's a nanoparticle formulation called Ampatro that's used in an FDA-approved drug called Patisserin. Um, this lipid nanoparticle carries an siRNA. The siRNA turns off a disease, effectively cures this disease called TTR amyloidosis. This drug has been approved for a few years now, uh, and patients that are treated with this drug get, get injected with it once every few weeks and have had that happen for several years. So they've been injected and re-injected and re-injected and re-injected many, many times uh, over several years. In the drug world, we call this the ability to dose to effect and what we mean by that is um, you can inject somebody uh, often enough to keep the effect going, and you don't have to inject them more often or less often than that. So we can dose as frequently or infrequently as we want until we achieve the effect that we want. Uh, you, can, you can do this with non-viral systems such as nanoparticles, but you cannot do this with viruses.
I should note you're in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. Do you see the challenges of delivering genetic medicines as an engineering problem? Yes, the challenge of delivering engineering medicines is definitely an engineering problem. As an example, in my laboratory, we have medicinal chemists, we have RNA virologists, we have structural RNA scientists, we have chemical engineers, we have mechanical engineers. Um, it's a multidisciplinary problem, but it ends up being an engineering problem. So you need great chemistry expertise, you need an understanding of, of the biology of delivery, you need to understand the biology of the disease you're trying to treat by delivering the drug. Um, and combining all that stuff together, you really need to create an engineer, a chemical system that works within your own natural biological system. And so at the end of the day, it is an engineering problem because it's a design problem. You need to understand the chemistry that goes into the design. You need to understand the biology that goes into the design, but it's a design problem and therefore an engineering problem. What distinguishes one nanoparticle from another? Is it just a matter of size or do they have other properties that can be engineered to make them more targeted? Yeah, nanoparticle design is really interesting and multifaceted. So if you just look at lipid nanoparticles, so if you exclude polymeric nanoparticles, peptide nanoparticles and other types, and you just focus on LNPs, the LMPs that have been EUA approved for the vaccines and separately the LMPs have been FDA approved for siRNA drugs. These LMPs tend to have four components. You have an ionizable lipid. You have what's called a PEG lipid. You have cholesterol and then you have a helper lipid, which is often a phospholipid or something that looks like a phospholipid. So you have four ingredients. Each one of those ingredients can have a different structure. So if you look at ionizable lipids, one of the ingredients, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of different ionizable lipids that we can design. Similarly, there are a few hundred peg lipids that we could design, a few hundred cholesterol variants that you could buy or design, and so on. So you have four different variables. Each variable has between hundreds and thousands of different structures you could try. And we know that the structure for each one of those variables matters. If you change the ionizable lipid slightly, but keep everything else the same, the other three variables the same, that particle will behave very, very differently. Similarly, if you take the peg lipid and you change the peg lipid, but you keep everything else the same, the particle will behave differently. So you have a four-dimensional chemical problem where each dimension has hundreds to thousands of combinations. So it really is a combinatorial chemical trait that gives the particle its, its sort of identity and, and targeting. 
So this is a little bit different than, than just thinking about the particle size or just thinking about the particle charge. It really is the combination of all four chemical traits that give the particle its, its function and its biological identity. I think of engineers using a design, build, test, and learn approach. Is this just a matter of trial and error or are there ways to calculate the properties of a particle to get it to the tissue you wanna penetrate? Eventually, we will get to a point where we can rationally design nanoparticles. However, we are not there yet and we are not anywhere close to being there yet. And so the biggest challenge for the field right now is developing assays that give you meaningful delivery data. So imagine for a second, if you are, you know, you're, you're a nanoparticle scientist and you want something to deliver to the lungs. It can be any tissue, but for this example, say the lungs. You can make thousands and thousands of different nanoparticles. You make a big one, a small one, a charged one, a neutral one, you can make whatever you'd like. So let's say you make 2,000 of them. Well, you're not sure which one's gonna work. You say, I want this to target the lungs. So what are you gonna do? You can either perform a six, eight, 10,000 mouse experiment, which is unethical and impractical, or you can test them in a cell culture plant by taking some lung cells, putting them on a dish, and then testing all 2,000 in the dish, whittling that down from 2,000 down to let's say three or four top nanoparticles, and then putting those in the mouse. That's what the field's done for a while. Make a lot of stuff, test it in cell culture, and then hope that the best particles in cell culture work in the animal. Because again, it's unethical to do thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of mice. The problem is that the delivery in the cell culture plate does not predict the delivery in the animal. So this is sort of a, a fundamental issue for the field. So one of the things that my lab has done has developed ways to test hundreds and hundreds of particles in one animal. And we do this using DNA barcoding. But the barcoding assays basically allow you to put these very, very large chemically diverse libraries into one animal instead of having to do it in thousands and thousands of animals. You actually spun off a, a company that's since been acquired by Beam Therapeutics around the barcoding technologies. Can, can you explain what DNA barcoding is and how it actually works? Yeah, the company was called Guide Therapeutics. It was spun out of Georgia Tech and, as you mentioned, was acquired by Beam in 2021. And Guide was based on barcoding technologies that we developed in the lab. And the barcoding technologies allow you to run a lot of experiments at once. So let me walk you through how this, this works a little bit. It's actually quite interesting. Let's do a thought experiment. Let's say you wanted to test two nanoparticles and you only had one mouse in front of you. How can you run two experiments at once? 
Well, you might think, I'll use color. I'll make one nanoparticle, I don't know, red, and I'll make another one, um, I don't know, purple. You can then inject both nanoparticles into the mouse and isolate, you know, the lungs, if you want to target the lungs, and see how much red color got there and how much purple color got there. If a lot more purple color got there, then you can say, oh, nanopart the purple nanoparticle is better than the red nanoparticle. The issue with that process is that you run out of colors. It tops off, if you, do, if you do multiple experiments in one mouse, it tops off around five or six different colors. So the question becomes, how do you run that same sort of experiment, but use hundreds of particles instead of five? So you can't use colors anymore. So instead of encoding the nanoparticle with the color, saying, okay, red equals nanoparticle one, purple equals nanoparticle two, Instead, you encode the nanoparticle with a DNA sequence, the DNA, that DNA barcode. So you say, oh, nanoparticle one, I'm going to make that nanoparticle carry DNA sequence number one. And then nanoparticle 150, I'm going to make the nanoparticle carry DNA sequence 150. I can then inject all 150 nanoparticles into the mouse, isolate the lungs, and then use DNA sequencing, essentially the 23andMe machine, think of it that way, to say, oh, how much barcode one is here? How much barcode two is here? How much barcode 150 is here? And if the sequencing results come back and they say, hey, there's a lot of a barcode 150 here, then you can say, oh, nanoparticle 150 is better then nanoparticles one, two, three, all the way through 149. So the DNA barcoding, by encoding nanoparticle one with barcode one and encoding nanoparticle XYZ with barcode XYZ, and then just sequencing the barcodes using the 23andMe type machines, you can really access an infinite number of particles uh, all at once. And so that's how we figured out how to run hundreds and hundreds of experiments in one animal. How quickly can particles be constructed and tested? You know, pretty quickly. Um, it takes about a, a day to make and characterize, let's say, 200 particles in my lab. Um, and then you can run the assay that day and get your readouts, you know, within the week. So we've... I think it's feasible to do, let's say, 200 particles and read out how they're being delivered into 30 different cell types out of the same animal. And you, if you're doing 200 particles and 30 different cell types, you're running 6,000 experiments in one animal. And you can do that within a week. So, you know, now that the barcoding is becoming a bit more mainstream, you can do a year, two, three years worth of work in an afternoon, essentially. Um, so it really is a, it really is an exciting time to be designing nanoparticles because now you can run all sorts of experiments that five years ago, you couldn't even have a prayer of completing within a few years. 
One of the other limitations of viral vectors is the size of the payloads they can carry. Is that a limitation with nanoparticles or can they be built to suit any size needed? So nanoparticles do not have the same size constraints as viruses. Um, as you increase the size of the payload, so if you go from a small mRNA, for example, to a really big mRNA, of course the delivery becomes harder. But nanoparticles do not have any sort of physical, like hard physical limitations that, I, that I'm aware of. So I find it very likely that nanoparticles will be able to deliver very large payloads, including things like base editors, which is what Beam develops, or even newer constructs like prime editors, um, or these other CRISPR-Cas constructs that you know, are, are pretty large. I think, I think nanoparticles are gonna be able to, to carry those things. The earliest genetic medicines we've seen have targeted the, the liver, the eye and, and blood. What tissues and cell types can we target today with nanoparticles and how rapidly do you see that expanding? So in humans, we can deliver siRNA and separately mRNA plus coding Cas9 or a variant of Cas9 plus sgRNA into hepatocytes. We can do that in, in humans. Um, as we've seen with the vaccines, you can deliver mRNA locally through intramuscular administration into cells that eventually get trafficked to the immune system um, that then confer immunity to, to SARS-CoV-2 and its variants. Moving forward, I think the next tissues that, that might be targeted will be immune cells. I could envision uh, delivery to T cells. I could envision delivery to macrophages, B cells, and other cells in the immune system. There are gonna be some tissues that are gonna be really hard to hit. For instance, it'll be very hard to administer an nanoparticle in the blood and then have it cross over into the, the brain, for example. I think that's gonna be hard. But there are plenty of good diseases you could go after within the immune system. I think you're gonna see delivery to endothelial cells, which are the cells that line your blood vessels. Um, you might see delivery in tissues um, such as muscle. Um, so, you know, it's, so I think those are the tissues that are gonna be next. How quickly that's gonna come, I, I don't know. Um, Non-liver delivery is much harder than liver delivery. We've now had success in the liver but that doesn't mean that we're immediately going to have success in these other tissues, which is why I'm so grateful that, you know, um, both investors and um, funding agencies like the NIH have started to allocate resources and supported substantial efforts to look at delivery uh, outside the liver, because without those resources, it's very unlikely to work. You mentioned NIH. Is there a particular role you think federal funding of research can play here that the private sector can't do or won't invest in? Oh, yes. If you do not have federal funding in drug delivery, you will not have drugs that reach the clinic and new tissues, period. 
the private investors or the companies that are developing these drugs are not set up to perform the fundamental, really, really, really high risk, um, really, really, really early stage science that's needed to deliver outside of the loop. As a result, that work has to be done via federal funding. If that work isn't federally funded, it's just too risky for private investors to take on and it, it just won't happen. So I, I think it, as stark as that sounds, I, I, I do think it's, it's an existential thing. If you don't have federal funding for this, uh, it doesn't happen. And if it doesn't happen, then you're gonna see all these drugs that could be cures for these horrible genetic diseases just not get developed. So I, I do think it's really, really important. You had mentioned you, you don't foresee using lipid nanoparticles injected into the blood to deliver therapies to the brain, but you know, we, we've seen viral vectors used uh, through intrathecal delivery. Would, would that be something that would be desirable for a lipid nanoparticle? Yes, I do think it is feasible to inject a lipid nanoparticle or other nanoparticle intrathecally um, and have it go to the brain. And the reason why is because the physical barriers between where you're injecting the particle and where that particle has to go to treat the disease um, aren't as significant if you do intrathecal delivery. By contrast, if you inject in the blood, there are a lot of barriers, including a really, really tough physical barrier between the blood and the brain. And it's really hard for particles to get across that barrier. And I think this lesson is a general lesson. I tell my lab members not to believe in magic, sort of jokingly. And, and what I mean by this is, if you have to inject a nanoparticle in location X, and that nanoparticle needs to deliver a drug to location Y, and in between X and Y, there are a ton of physical barriers. That's just gonna be awfully hard. And the nanoparticle is not magic. It is hard for a particle to get through tough barriers. So I think your intrathecal administration ideas on point because it reduces the barriers between the nanoparticle administration and where the nanoparticle has to go in the work. And do you see the field eventually moving away from viral vectors or is there always going to be a place for that? There will always be a place for viral vectors. The traits of a viral vector, um, the advantages of the viral vector, the disadvantages of the viral vector, all compared to a nanoparticle, they're so different from one another that I think there's always going to be a disease that makes sense to treat with a viral vector. It makes no sense at all to treat with a nanoparticle, just like there are gonna be other diseases where it makes no sense at all to treat with the virus, but it does make sense to treat with the nanoparticle. Ultimately, what do you see as the potential here to use this delivery technology to 
advance the field of genetic medicines? I look to the liver. If you look at the drug development in the liver, where we can deliver RNA drugs today, it's amazing. Alnylam Pharmaceuticals has, I think, 13 or 14 different clinical programs ongoing right now, treating different liver diseases. You're talking about diseases that until these drugs came along were debilitating or in some cases uniformly fatal. And now you can just get a shot every once in a while and the disease is halted. If we can deliver to any other tissue, the RNA drugs themselves and the genetic targets and the diseases are there. If we could deliver to one more tissue, you could see a dozen or two dozen diseases within that tissue cured eventually. So if we can deliver to two tissues, then you're into the dozens, plural. So the way I think about it is if we can just solve delivery to any, the way I think about it is for every tissue we solve delivery to, you're looking at a dozen diseases that could be cured within that tissue. So, you know, I, again, I think it's borderline existential, but I think it's really, really important to work on non-liver delivery because the potential impact on patients is, is drastic. It's night and day. Um, so I think the, the potential is just so high. Um, if we could just get something outside the liver, it, it could really save a lot of lives. James Dahlman, Associate Professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Georgia Tech and Emory University. James, thanks so much for your time today. Hey, thanks, Daniel. Appreciate it. And uh, stay safe out there. And if you're listening, get vaccinated. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.